<laughs> yeah, you know, it's something that uh, I've always been really passionate about, about the world and, and kind of getting outside of my, my own area. I can tell you, even in my own family, um, I have the rare distinction of having uh, between my two kids, my wife and me, we were all born on different continents. So um, we're definitely like, a, we, we have Europe, Asia, Australia, and North America in our, in our four person family for our places of birth. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time around, but I think for the, the kind of mission side of things beyond just like really liking to get out and see the world and meet people from around the world is that, yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding and lack of awareness around how you can, particularly with innovation, how you can bring great innovation to market and, and build really successful companies uh, by, by approaching growth in the right way. And so first and foremost, I want to bring just awareness to this much better way of driving growth and, and building uh, a sustainable, successful business. But then secondly, since my book came out, you know, we're, we're on track to, to do, 1 million book sales in the first 10 years. And so there is already a lot of awareness, but I've had the feedback from people who read the book that, you know, a lot of them get excited about it and they, and they understand it, but when they actually try to apply it in their companies, they get pretty frustrated. And um, it's, you know, so I've spent a lot of time over the last several years figuring out how, how to overcome the inertia of an organization who's always done things one way how, how do you introduce a new way and actually get that organization to effectively adopt it and capitalize on it? And I have a really good program for achieving that. And so that's, that's a big part of this world tour as well is to engage with both individual companies. And it's a, it's a workshop format where it's, you know, growth is, growth is cross-functional. Growth is something that uh, when a marketing team comes together with a product team and an engineering team and design and data and, you know, for B2B and sales, when you get everyone coming together and working in the right way, you can achieve amazing results, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a challenging, uh, thing to kick off. And so in a workshop format, I'm able to get the, the key people in the room together for a full day and, and really get them to agree on how are they going to work together more effectively. And so, yeah, I've, I've refined this program a lot. Uh, by working with hundreds of companies, uh, you know, big and small, from all the way from kind of Microsoft at the top to to relatively small startups, and uh, and so yeah, I'm excited about just helping not just companies understand the potential of of growth hacking, but actually how they can work together more effectively to use growth hacking to to drive really efficient uh, acceleration in their growth. So Sean, how can larger and established companies implement the growth team? So it is not only startups or technology firms. Right. I think the companies and grow, I mean, um, already established companies can also implement the, uh, this uh, mindset. How can yeah, it you know, it's, it's interesting. I got, I got a question yesterday from uh, a friend of my daughter's who uh, is, is working for a kind of a luxury car dealer. And he's like, I read the book and I got really excited about it. And he's, he's focusing on customer acquisition there. And um, he, he's basically like, I'm having a hard time thinking about how this applies in my business, but I, but I know it does. And so what I actually gave him, I said, let me give you an extreme example of where I've used the, the growth hacking principles and, and process 
not even in business, outside of business. And so I gave him two examples. And you and I have kind of touched on one of those uh, in our in our direct communication, which was when I was coaching my daughter's soccer team. But I'll, I'm going to start with a different one, which was about uh, about a year and a half ago, kind of in the in the in the depth of the pandemic, I uh, my blood pressure ended up. I'd never had blood pressure problems, and suddenly my blood pressure was was off the charts high. I was in a doctor's appointment, and they um, they took it like five times because they didn't even believe it was that high, and they they were like on the brink of sending me to the hospital. And so I yeah I never thought about blood pressure, and so I I, uh, I went back and I researched and I I came up with you know, 10 best things you can do to reduce your blood pressure. So kind of that's, if you think of it in growth hacking terms, it's sort of like first understand before you try to improve something. So I, I really tried to understand those things. And when I told my doctor what I was going to do, uh, she, she was like, you're crazy. You, you can't, you can't sustain that. But I use growth hacking to figure out without medication, what was going on with my blood pressure and how to get it back to normal. And I got it to normal in 30 days. And so what I did was I took each of the 10 things that, that I learned were the most important and I made a spreadsheet. And so every day for a month, I was going to do each of those 10 things. I put my little check mark next to each one each day. And then after each one, I would check my blood pressure. So I would, I would you know, do a measurement and then you know, do some other things for a little while, then do the next thing and do, do my measurement. And I was able to discover that uh, one thing had way bigger impact than anything else. And that was a, uh, a, a meditation, but not just meditation, but gratitude meditation. And so what it turned out, what was spiking my, my blood pressure was that I have one daughter who has a chronic illness that makes her uh, like her immune, uh, you know, very, very at high risk with COVID. And then I had another daughter who had just started university and, and uh, like a lot of uh, first year university students, she had her own mental health challenges. And so I was, I was really worried about both of them. And they were calling me and talking to me for two hours per day each. And so like half of my day is, listening to these kids that are so scared and so stressed out. And so my meditation, so I started to even get resentment where, why, why are they calling me so often? So my meditation essentially reframed it and said, I'm the luckiest guy in the world where I have a relationship with my daughters that they want to talk to me for two hours every day. And all that stress just disappeared as soon as I reframed it as, as like, I'm very, fortunate and lucky to have this relationship with my kids. And so again, that was, that was the test measure, test measure, test measure, figure out what the problem was. And in this case, instead of up, I'm, I'm trying to get something down. And then uh, one other quick example was, yeah, when I was coaching my daughter's soccer team, I, uh, I didn't really, my wife signed me up for, to be a soccer coach. I didn't really play much soccer growing up a little bit, but I didn't know much about it. They really needed someone to do it. I was a CEO at a startup, so I didn't, I didn't have time to do it, but you know, I kind of got guilted into it and okay, whatever, I'll do it. And so, um, of course I approached it then like I do anything else where I, I first looked at all the kids and asked them, what, what do you like to do? And a lot of them said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an offensive player or I'm a defensive player. And so then I, I basically, um, 
started to record uh, my, my metric that I was recording was, you know, if I, if I just do score, like that doesn't happen enough in a game to have enough data. So I went upstream from score, which was taking a shot on the goal. And so what I started to record each day or each, each game was how many shots did we take on the opponent's goal and how many shots did the opponent take on our goal? And then each quarter of the game, I would completely change the lineups. So girls who have always been attackers, I would put them in defense. Girls who had always been on defense, I'd put them in offense. And I would just literally move move the kids all around. And so test, measure, test, measure, test, measure. And um, by the end of the season, we we were so dominant that that I was getting in trouble from the league that, uh, you know, that I was trying to keep the score, trying to keep my kids from scoring too much to embarrass the other teams. And so, um, again, if I, if I could do it in youth soccer, if I can do it with my health, how hard is it for a non-technical business to do it? And, and so it really, I think growth hacking comes down to um, that there, there is a better way to do everything. And the only way to figure out what's better is to try other things. And so you need to measure the right things and try other things. And so, you know, whether you're a startup that's digital or a big company that's not digital, the question is, are you doing everything perfectly? And if you think so, you're delusional. But if you <laughs> admit that there's probably better ways to do things, then the question is, how do you figure out what are those better ways? Um, how has the growth hacking evolved over the years since you coined the term? Uh, is there yeah. any difference uh, since a long time? By, by the way, uh, I, I I forgot to ask. Are you also changed your nutrition? Are you plant based now? <laughs> well, for the blood pressure. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have definitely changed my diet. Of course, like sodium is a is a big factor there, and so I'm not completely plant based, but I have I do zero red meat now. So I'm I'm moving in the direction of plant based, but uh, but yeah, my my blood pressure is healthy now. So every, everything else is is just to to optimize my health. <laughs> Um, so back to the question you were asking, how, how has growth hacking changed? Um, you know, when I first wrote about it, I wrote about it in a blog post in 2010, and I was really looking at it from the perspective of the world that I lived in, which was early stage startups. And so early stage startups are very vulnerable. They're always, you know, close to death. And so I was essentially saying, you know, a startup does not have the luxury to focus on things like awareness building. Everything needs to be scrutinized by its impact on growth and, and everything that has some impact on growth can have more if you test better ways to do it. So I was, I was focusing on that test learn process, but I didn't, I didn't really emphasize that it could be outside of startups because I wasn't, I, I was essentially saying, if you're, if you're a startup, you would be crazy not to do this. And, um, and I think what I where it's evolved since then is again that I've I've realized that the that the that the approach applies well beyond startups. So it applies to large technical companies. So one of the companies um, you know that that has embraced growth hacking is over the years is Microsoft. Uh, even Amazon, the Jeff Bezos, the former CEO, the founder says our success at Amazon is a function of how many tests we run per day, per month, per year. Like it's, you know, so, so 
I think you're seeing that the that the foundations of success in a lot of companies are are built into this test learn process, and so um, so I think that's that's one evolution is that it was a lot broader than I originally. It wasn't that I didn't think it was applicable. It just I wasn't in that world, so I didn't I didn't even try to apply it in that world or think about its applicability. But then the second thing that's changed is that. Um, People got pretty excited pretty quickly, like when when they when they heard about it, you know, and and growth hacking. Now that sounds weird. That sounds interesting. So they kind of kind of like it took notice. And I think within within a year of me writing the blog post, there were a thousand uh, job listings for for growth hackers, and um, and so like there was a lot of excitement about it. But but what you started to see was um, you you started to see kind of people not taking the time to understand it as I explained it. And then, and then kind of making up their own, you know, so there's this thing called growth hacking and companies are growing really fast. And so it's about tricking people or it's about being really clever with marketing or, you know, and so you start to see a lot of kind of alternative definitions emerge. And, um, and so that, I think that's another evolution is that, um, there's there's a lot of confusion around what what I originally meant with growth hacking and you know and I think in Europe you you a lot of times see it as uh, as as really people who do marketing in a clever way they think of that as growth hacking I think in in Silicon Valley uh, you have you have some people who just think oh any anything that tricks people that's growth hacking and so you. You know, and at the end of the day, I don't care if, if we call it growth hacking or growth or, you know, scientific method, you know, uh, whatever, whatever we call it, there's just a really powerful way to drive growth in businesses. And so that's, that's what I'm focused on is, is trying to help people understand what that way is and, uh, and help them implement it. So let's go back and how will you explain growth hacking term? To a ten-year-old, then <laughs> uh, let's be on the same page with the definition. Yeah, so I think for for a ten-year-old, I would just focus really. You know, they're they're not even going to know why growth is important. So I would just focus on on kind of more the the growth mindset, like where where it. I would essentially say, you need to recognize that everything in the world can be improved. There's a better way to do everything. And the only way to really understand what that better way is, is to try other stuff. And, and to know if that other stuff works, you need to measure it. And so it kind of gets this idea of improvement through, through testing. And not everything you try is going to work. Some things aren't going to work well. And so, again, like that, that kind of teaches them to apply it in their, their world. Like if, they're, if they like to play basketball, they start to say, maybe, maybe – I shouldn't always shoot it like this. Maybe I, I, I shoot it like this or, you know, they, they come up with uh, anything that they're trying to drive improvement in, in school. If I, if I always study for a test by reading, maybe I should uh, watch some videos or, or write for, for studying for the test. So it, 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 I, that's what I would explain to them is that just teaching that foundational idea that there is a better way to do everything and you find that better way by trying other stuff and measuring the results. Um, you have met lots of startups around the world uh, and when they were small. Uh, 
you are a founder yourself as well, exited some of your companies. Should you share the experience from the early days of successful startups that have grown uh, huge amounts of progress in your own experience and uh, from from your uh, uh, point of view, like HubSpot, Canva, or other startups that we don't know? Yeah, so so HubSpot, I'm going to have a little bit more insight into because I was I was a shareholder in HubSpot, you know, before they did their IPO because I I uh, I had been an advisor to a company they acquired, and um, and so I think one of the things that really impressed me about HubSpot in the early days was um, this thing that I don't hear them talk about it much now, but they called it CHI C H I Customer Happiness Index. And so I think one of the fundamental principles in growth is that you need to focus on, on value to the customer and increasing, increasing the amount of value that you're delivering across your customer base over time. And so that being a guiding principle at HubSpot in the early days, I think was, was really powerful. And, and I'll give you an example. So um, when they had salespeople bring in new customers, if those salespeople brought in a new customer and the ca- customer happiness index was too low, that changed the compensation structure for that salesperson. And so it, it, it's tempting. I was in sales early in my career and it's tempting to tell the customer whatever they want to hear to get the sale. But if you, if you promise something that the product isn't very good at delivering, the customer is not going to be happy and, and you're ultimately going to lose that customer. And so retention is a fundamental a fundamental principle in growth and retention is based on on you know value that the customer is getting from the product and so i think that as a as a guiding principle in the early days at hubspot was really powerful i'll admit canva i met as the early team i, I went to speak at an event in in uh, australia probably 2015 2016 and uh someone you know, I said, who, who are the really interesting startups in Australia? And can I, can I meet some of them? And someone said, oh, there's this, there's this company called Canva. And uh, I said, yeah, let's, let's meet them. I'll, I'll, I'll give them some free advice and, you know, we'll just sit down and, and see, you know, see if I can be helpful. And so I sat down with the CEO and some of the, the, the execs from the team and, uh, and I didn't think much of it. Like I, I, I thought, you know, this is a neat product. Sounds good. Um, and then, you know, then I went to the next meeting Then I went to the next meeting and, and I kind of just forgot about it. And I, I took them pretty lightly and it wasn't until you know, a few years later when both of my kids came back and said, Oh man, I've been using this tool called Canva. That's so cool. And I'm like, wait, Canva. Like if, if it's reached my kids, this thing must be on fire. And then I dug back into it and, and was super impressed. I actually had their, uh, their former head of product on my podcast. And it was, it was one of the best podcast episodes. And so I, I, I do think, you know, ultimately the biggest driver of success in, in any business is not growth hacking. It's product market fit. If, if you have the right product in the right market, that's going to define your potential more than whatever process you use to reach that market. Of course, 
realizing that potential then is around execution and and the 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 growth process is a great way to to capitalize on on the potential but that's where i think i think any super successful company started with fantastic product market fit or iterated their way to fantastic product market fit and canva would be a great example there and then obviously obviously they didn't screw up the uh the execution side either they did really well with the execution side so what are the some of the cultural uh, differences you have noticed in guiding the these global startups um how does the culture uh, impact the growth hacking process so it's interesting um so i would say that like by far the most successful market for my book is china china we've done over 600,000 book sales in china and so you know why china and and i would say that uh east asian east asian culture is often a lot more about kind of team dynamics and working together for the collective goal and that's that's a lot of what growth hacking is about and so i think i think they they are kind of closer culturally to being able to adopt it and do it well so kind of the opposite of that is actually america so <laughs> united states um you know we 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 really pride ourselves on kind of independence and autonomy in the united states and and so um it's you have a further way to be, go in the united states and kind of like a culture of ownership for example you own this metric i own this metric and we trust each other do our, do our jobs but we stay out of each other's way is kind of the starting point in the united states and it turns out that the that that approach in the united states is not a good approach for growth and it's weird i would think a culture of ownership and autonomy is really good but growth you know what, what that ends up doing is creating disjointed experiences for a customer so you know marketing brings them to the front door kind of product keeps making the product better for a lot of organizations for a long time that 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 space in between marketing and product no one owned and so it became this black hole where you lost a lot of customers um and so you know to be really successful you need to be able to get teams working closely together to to have a customer experience that that's really uh, a fluid customer experience about getting them to the right experience and getting them back there often and so growth hacking when it's successful actually looks the same in China or in the United States at least in my my experience and um it's about having a team that works well together that has a shared understanding of growth has has a one metric that dominates all other metrics we call the north star metric uh agrees in a test learn process where everyone knows that when when there's an opportunity to get more customers to a more valuable experience it doesn't matter which team owns that we're going to work on that opportunity to maximize to maximize that to to improve it and so um i think successful growth hacking surprisingly looks the same it's like, it's sort of like saying uh again i i think growth hacking and the scientific method are almost the same thing and it's like well what does the scientific method look like in turkey versus uh the netherlands you know the truth is it's it looks the same it's about hypotheses and testing those hypotheses and looking at the data and so i think where culture comes in it's it's more about uh what are the challenges in getting a group of people to execute it and so that's that's probably 
that's probably where the culture piece comes in. But the the success actually looks surprisingly similar across different cultures. So uh, while we are earlier uh, uh, conversation, you mentioned about the not only executives, but all the team should have the growth mindset. Otherwise, Absolutely. it is uh, very difficult to implementation. Yeah. Uh, what do you recommend for the startups uh, to make a growth culture from the beginning days, by the way? Yeah, so you have to you have to kind of ask yourself what what creates culture, and so I, I would say that habits create culture. You know, habits and and kind of uh, and 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 what people value and what's important, but but then ultimately what they do starts to create the culture more than anything. Because a lot of times you can have like a culture document, but if if people behave in a way that's very different than the culture document in a business. The culture document is not the culture. The behavior of the people is the culture. And so ultimately then it, it is how do you how do you drive the behavior that leads to a culture of growth? And so that in in, in my experience starts with kind of a, a shared goal up front. Like what 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 do we want to achieve and how do we think we can achieve that? And then and then getting people to You know, and, and so in this case with growth, it's like, all right, we agree that if we can have people experience the product this way, we're going to be able to create a lot of impact on people. And so we also agree that we're going to have to test a lot of things to, to do that. And the more that we run tests that effectively improve our value delivery, the, uh, the, the happier we're going to be that we're, we're being successful. And so how do you build that growth culture? You you actually focus on the behavior of running tests and measure the results. And you need enough wins to validate that that behavior is good behavior. And so when you have the behavior and you generate winning experiments through that behavior, you're going to create the results that that's going to lead to the buy-in that, that ultimately leads to people saying, wow, this growth stuff works. I really care about growth. I have an impact on growth. We're, what we're working on is important and and we're and we're succeeding on what we're working on and that and that's where I think you ultimately build the growth culture but it uh it yeah it's it's not about a document it's more about how how do you encourage the behavior and how do you help the team see that that behavior drives the desired results I mean is growth hacking and rapid experimentation beneficial to all companies or are there any some situations where it should be avoided. I mean, are there any downsides of pursuing a growth too aggressively? Yes. So, well, there's there's two pieces. One, um, I'll, I'm just going to kind of state it separately. Like, I think businesses that 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 are uh, doing something that's not good for the world, like I I would hope that they're not using growth hacking, but. Um, You know, you you create a tool, and and you know what what people do with that tool is gonna 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 be up to them. But um, so I it, I would just say that as a caveat. But but secondly, um, the biggest mistake that I see with growth hacking that that relates to when it when it shouldn't be used is people trying to use growth hacking in a pre-product market fit situation. So what happens when you try to grow something? the complexity goes way up. So suddenly, suddenly I need a customer support team. We're, we're, we're bringing in customers here. Suddenly I need to scale my infrastructure. I need a payment system. I need, you know, you need all these things, but it turns out that the core of the whole thing is 
flawed. Like I'm, I'm actually not creating any value for my customers or not enough value to retain those customers. And so we're now so distracted from value creation because we're trying to grow that now we have 5% of our energy to put into core product iteration, where if we were truthful and we said, gosh, there's not, there's not enough people who truly value what we've created. And if we try to grow this, we're going to fail. Now we can put a hundred percent of our effort on a small team. So your burn level is way lower. So maybe you can have five people on your team instead of 50 that manage the the, a growing business, five people are managing the iteration of getting that product to a level where you can really keep the target customer happy on the product. And so that, that I think is probably the most important lesson when it comes to, to growth hacking is that if you do not have validated product market fit, then growth hacking is probably going to accelerate your path to going out of business. Mm -hmm. I understand completely understandable. Uh, are there any um, avoid pirate metrics uh, that don't actually drive the growth, uh, but seems to be uh, looking great metrics to follow? Yeah, so I think pi I think there's metrics that don't drive growth, but I actually think the pirate metric framework is actually a pretty good one. So um, you know, acquisition all the way down to retention and referral and revenue that. Anytime you can make an improvement on on any one of those, you're you're going to increase your ability to uh, capture and and retain customers in a in a sustainable way in the business. So, um, I, yeah, to me, like the 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 best example that I I would say of like when when I see companies uh, focus on a metric that that doesn't help the business would be like app downloads, for example, or registrations for their business. And so it really depends on how do you define acquisition. If you define acquisition as getting someone to a good first experience with the product, which you know some might say is all, all the way to activation, but um, then, then I think acquisition is important. But if you, if you simply say, um, oh, I got 10,000 registrations for my product, but not a single one of them actually used the product, that's that's where I see a lot of companies uh, make the mistake of thinking that they're growing, but they're not. They're just they're they're just building up a list of people that they can try to spam later with email and and uh, but they're they're not really creating value. So that's where having a north star metric. So a north star metric is is really a metric that captures how much value you're delivering to your customers. So a couple of examples would be. Uh, Uber looks at weekly rides and, uh, and Facebook and, and Slack look at just daily active users. But I think in both cases, you're talking about people who actually use the service, who who experience the service for the value that it has to offer. If you're if you're focused on that metric, then all all of the pirate metrics are going to contri contribute to moving that metric and uh, and and then then you're moving in the right direction and so um that's it becomes really important one of the first things we do in my workshops is uh is help each company define the right north star metric that everyone in the company should understand and should monitor and should understand their role in moving that metric in the right direction so for example with the workshops who who should be your target companies that can also join the participate the workshop in istanbul 
So again, I've, I've had a big range. So um, eBay's had me back for multiple times. So uh, particularly in their classified um, classified business units across Europe, they've had me back. Um, Microsoft with their Office 360 group, but then a lot of smaller companies. Actually, I, I worked with Jotform in Turkey. Um, they, they were, I was really impressed with that team. And, and again, with Jotform, it's a, a great example of uh, a, a relatively low price product all the way up to enterprise sales and and how how do you get an integrated engine working well with that so um, I think the more that that a business has super unique needs we probably need to do like a private workshop like I had done with with jotform but uh, for for a lot of businesses they can uh, benefit from a from a group workshop where where we have 10 companies together and um, and I think probably there the, the the only that the only ones that probably aren't a good fit would be would be enterprise targeted businesses that maybe do just you know a handful of transactions a year because you're just you're not going to get enough data to to iterate on so they still might benefit but they're not going to benefit nearly as much as a as a business to consumer business or you know even a B two B like like a Slack or a HubSpot that has uh, a free version or a relatively low price version where they get a very high velocity model of, of lots of people signing up and using the product and, you know, trying to drive that engagement that leads to the, to the upsells. Um, that's those companies will, will get a lot of benefit. And, and that particularly if they, if they kind of take one month of, of, uh, advertising, you know, 10% of their advertising dollars and they put it toward this, they will, they're, they're going to probably get a 50% improvement on all future advertising dollars for all, you know, months afterwards, depending on like how, how big their ad budget is. So it's one of those things that, um, you know, so many companies focus so much money on competing to get someone's attention where the real focus of growth hacking is how do I, how do I leverage that attention to deliver great experiences to my customers where I can monetize them not just once, but over over a long lifetime value. And the better you are at that, the the easier it is to find very profitable paid customer acquisition channels. Or like in the case of Dropbox, we we really we hit one billion dollars in revenue with Dropbox um, with cash flow positive results faster than any SaaS business had ever done it before Dropbox and uh, with really no traditional advertising. And so I think that's the that's the real power of this is that you if you do kind of traditional advertising, you're gonna get a lot more bang for your buck, but you might be able to get away with not doing any traditional advertising. And you digital. have a huge experience around the world uh, with, with these workshops. You 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 yep. know the successful examples of growth hacking. And what are the growth hacking failures, biggest failures? Have you experience or uh, seen these kinds of failures in growth hacking? Yeah, I mean, I come back to this product market fit question. And I think the challenge with product market fit is it's not always clear if you have it or not. And so I, for example, in the past have thought I had product market fit and tried to grow something only to realize that I didn't have product market fit. And so that's going to lead to that, you know, as I said, growth hacking, then if you don't have product market fit, and you're doing growth hacking, you're actually accelerating your, your path to killing the company. And so um, the, I, I have a, a, a 
a lot of people call it the Sean Ellis question now, something that I, I published years ago, which is a, a very quick way to assess product market fit. And that's just asking your existing customers, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And if you don't have a lot of customers saying that they'd be very disappointed. So I give them the choice, very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed or not applicable. I've already stopped using the product. Um, if, if you don't have a lot of customers saying I would be very disappointed without you, then you probably don't have product market fit. And so I found that it's around, if I, if I have a business that's around 40% or higher of the customers saying they'd be very disappointed without it, that's a business I can sustainably grow. And, um, and even if it's not a global 40%, if I have to segment a group down to, let's say, I'm only going to look at the college students. Oh, wow. When I ask the college students, it goes up to 60% or I'm only going to ask women. Like if you, if you had like a, a, a feminine product, a product for women, and you, you ask that question to men, the, the answer is probably going to be pretty low that on, on the disappointment level, unless there's a use case that you, you weren't aware of, um, so it's important to segment that data to identify what your target customer is. But if your target customer comes in, experiences the product, and they still wouldn't care if you went away, that's not a situation where you likely have product market fit. Um, do you have, a, for example, a growth hacking template for the podcasters or how to uh, grow the hacking, uh, hack the growth of podcasts? You know, I, so I have my own podcast as well. And, um, the challenge with podcasting, I mean, I, maybe, maybe you have the answer on here, but for, for me, the, the, the measurement is awful. You can't, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know how many people, I mean, I have some data around how many people listen to an episode, but, um, I don't know where those people came from. I don't know how they found out about it. I don't, you know, so there's, it's, because they can listen through so many different platforms, it's very hard to isolate cause and effect. And so, um, you know, for me, I've, I've kind of come to the point where I've, I've redefined what are my objectives with my podcasts? Is mm -hmm. it, is it to create the most popular podcast in the world? No, for me, it's really, I want to talk with interesting people from fast growing companies to understand the nuances about growth in their business. So whether it's a CEO or a head of product or head of growth. And so it's really for my own learning. Um, and then also I get, uh, I get some great case studies because I'm talking to them in public on a podcast. I can use that information in my workshops. I can use it in my keynotes and I don't, it's not like when I'm working with a company directly and we have a, an, a non-disclosure agreement in place, I'm always sensitive about what can I talk about or not. So those two things are my real goal. And if I keep focusing on quality, I'm confident that uh, I'm going to attract uh, the, the listeners within my, within my uh, you know, target group that are going to benefit from it. And so it's even the same thing with the book. Like when we launched the book, so many people are obsessive about, you know, getting on, you know, a Wall Street Journal bestseller list or a New York Times bestseller list when they, when they launch a book. We were just very focused on, on the quality of the book, like just making the best book we could possibly make, getting really good distribution de deals around the world, getting reviews. So when people read the book, they, they would review us on Amazon and other platforms. And then 
and then just do what we do in our regular life and not spend too much time obsessing on, on the growth of the book. And, you know, it, the numbers that the book's on in, in, in any given year, there's about 500,000 fiction and nonfiction books that, that come out published, you know, with a publisher, without a publisher. And of those books, about 20 of them will go on to sell a million copies in the first 10 years. We are one of those 20 and we, we didn't obsess on the numbers. We just obsessed on, on, uh, both the value of the book and also on, uh, on not being too short-term tactical, but being kind of evergreen content that is is going to benefit people today, but also going to benefit people five years from now, that it's something that would not be uh, outdated. And then finally, the, the thing I probably underestimated the most with the book was um, the, the power of having people from outside the industry uh, help us as editors on the book. So we we anytime that we wrote something, it was very easy to you know, lean on jargon and not even realize it was jargon, but to have editors who would say, what the heck does that mean? I don't understand that. And so to be able to kind of get the meaning behind the jargon and, and make it a lot more accessible so that like my mother, for example, when she read it as a, as a hospital nurse, she's like, oh, this is fantastic. I could see how I could apply it in my own world of work. And, and I, uh, I talked to a, a rowing coach who um, just this past week, who, who essentially said that he, uh, he read the book and a lot of the things that he's applied, he, he actually has now 300% more people trying to get on the team than he had a year ago. And a lot of that's based on, on things that he picked up from the book. So um, I think that the, the broader applicability is, is because we had people from outside the industry contributing to it. So um, that's a long answer to your question about podcasts, but um you know, ultimately, ultimately that it comes back to the product market fit piece that like potential is defined by product market fit. You can, you can, you know, kind of execute your way into, into growth that goes beyond really what your potential is, but you're always going to come back to your potential in the long term. So in the short term, maybe, maybe you get really clever and come up with a great idea. But if, if you're not providing value for the people who experience your product, you're not going to keep those people. They're not going to tell their friends and, and you're not going to have long-term growth. And that's the goal here is long-term growth. Um, I think my purpose from my own uh, recordings and podcasts are uh, are learning for myself. <laughs> so yeah. I, I invite the people and also the persons that I wanted to talk with and learn from them. And um, that's all. I, I'm not looking for... Uh, millions of uh, uh, downloads or uh, I mean content is more important for myself because yeah. I do it for on my sake <laughs> right <laughs> we we have with my with my podcast host we we often say like our goal is like an interesting conversation in a coffee shop with uh we, we we bring someone to the coffee shop we're talking with them and the people at the other tables are starting to like lean in and say oh this is interesting. And, and so what that's, you know, we're, we're doing it for ourselves, but um, we, we think that the conversations we're having are ones that will actually be interesting for other people as well. I mean, since last year, uh, the AI has been in our lives. How do you implement, for example, uh, the, this tool in growth hacking uh, uh, steps or growth hacking mindset? Yeah, I've done it a little bit. Um, so I had, one of the things that I like to do is, is, um, 
you know, go back and forth between teach. If I'm only teaching all the time, then I become pretty academic. And so I like to occasionally roll up my sleeves and, and stop teaching for a while and just only execute. And so, um, I, I spent a big chunk of this year, um, with a company called bounce and, um, they're, they're probably one of the fastest growing companies in the world right now for a company at their revenue level. And it was a really fun project. And so one of the things that I did early on with AI was, uh, you know, in chat GPT, just, just saying, give me 20 headlines for a product that does this. And I would just kind of like plug in the benefits and, and, uh, and I would say like, give me 20, 10 word headlines. And it would give me of, of the 20 that it would give me five of them were really good tests to run as, as like headlines on a landing page. And so I think there is some on the ideation side. I'm also an advisor to a company that, uh, that is, uh, essentially helping you identify opportunities in your funnel where you should focus your experimentation. And then, uh, and then, yeah, that, I think that the ultimately like the big value in AI is going to be around, um, around just speeding up the, the, the testing itself so that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's pulling variations, running the variations, figuring out what works there. And then, and then based on what works, one of the big challenges as you, as you get a high velocity testing program going is remembering what you've already tested and what you haven't tested. And if you can ingest all of that into AI and essentially say, you know, what's the best version that we've ever run on this page, you're going to learn a lot. Hey, doggy. <laughs> um, she always so, comes. Uh, yeah, the star of the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. I think there's, I'm, I'm excited about AI, but I don't think it's going to replace the, the, the creativity and, and human part of things completely. I think it's just going to bring a lot of leverage to it. But it will be in a couple of years time. What do you think about actionable? Which means today it is ideation uh, and looking for alternatives and also finding uh, uh, like a brainstorm. But in upcoming five to 10 years, uh, will it be changing the old techniques? Or uh, uh, is there a trend over there? Yeah, I think it's hard. It's hard to know for sure. Um, but it uh, it's definitely it's definitely something that um, that is already is already helping now. And uh, and and I'm not creative enough to figure out like what what's going to matter in you know like what, there's a lot of ideas about uh, about how it's going to impact. And yeah, you know, just like with growth hacking, like not every idea works and uh and it growth hacking to me is about uh trying a lot of things and then when something works doing a lot more of that and so i love all the the ideas and creativity around how ai is going to impact growth but the proof will be in the pudding and and uh we, we will ultimately you know the more stuff we try the more we're going to be able to see certain things emerge that um are way more impactful to growth than others. And, and the only way to really do that is through a lot of people uh, with trial and error and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and like with anything, there's going to be people who, who figure it out first and, and use it as a secret weapon for a while. And, and then there's going to be people like me that uh, like to share stuff that figures it out and <laughs> kind of lets the cat out of the bag. 
outside of your own book, what are what business or marketing books would you recommend or uh, fictional? What are on your nightstand right now? Yeah, I'm I'm constantly reading. Um, I like I yeah I read probably way too many books, but um, like I probably one of the ones that I that I love uh, the most is um, that I've come back to a lot is Influence by Cialdini. Um, I think when you kind of understand uh, human triggers, that's a that's kind of a, a consistent tool. So so any of the kind of psychology. Yeah, predictably irrational is another one. Any any of the sort of psychology that just helps you understand human behavior better um, has always been fascinating to me. Uh, Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Start Problem. I think that's back here. Yeah, got that there. Like I, I, I really love the Cold Start Problem uh, for a network effect business. Um, and uh, but yeah, besides that, like I'm you know mo most of the whatever I'm trying to learn at a given point, there's, there's a good book on it. So whether it's like presenting, I love a book called presenting to win. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm right now I'm reading a book called pitch anything. Um, but it's probably the fourth time I've read the book. So I do a lot of audiobooks because if I'm just, I, I sit all day at my desk and if I then sit and read a book, I, I feel <laughs> very unhealthy. So I like an audio book and go out and, and take a long walk and listen to it. And so um, pitch anything again would kind of be in the, in the, in the genre of, of influence. Um, so like the, the human psychology side is, is a puzzle that I'm always trying to, to unlock there. And again, the idea there is just like um, being able to, being able to see what um it, inspiration for ideas of of things to try where where sometimes it's kind of counterintuitive of of what people will respond to and um and so you know the better you can understand how people are wired and you know things like uh like uh you know if, if bandwagon effect and th things where where like if everyone else is doing something you're more likely to want to do it and and uh, consistency theory like if if someone says I identify this way, then you give them an opportunity to act in the way they identify. They're much more likely to do it if they previously said they identify that way. And and so that that starts to that starts to give you a lot of kind of guidance into how how do you onboard people effectively into a product. Sean, uh, this is a wonderful co conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you again for your time and insights. It has been uh, invaluable. Yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm I'm very excited to uh, to to come to Istanbul and work with you on putting together a big event to to get the community together and and then uh, having a a smaller group of of companies uh, work with me on workshops and um, but yeah, it's uh, I I first went to Istanbul when I was in university. I studied in in Budapest for a year and uh, just went by myself, jumped on a bus and, and went down to Istanbul from, uh, from, from Budapest and loved the city then and haven't been back since. So, um, I'm, I'm excited to go back now and, uh, and really get to know the startup scene there.